There is a trustworthy saying, whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him. And he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders, so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. In the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be faithful to his wife, must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great insurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. Although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the foundation of the truth, beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. The Spirit clearly says that in latter times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachers come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. Thanks so much, Frank. It's uh, great to be with you again today and to be looking at uh, this, this letter, 1 Timothy. be excellent if you could have an open at that chapter. I'm particularly going to be focusing on those first 13 verses of chapter 3, just picking up on the nature of uh, leadership among God's people. So let me, let me pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your uh, great love towards us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that 
uh, you've written to us so we'll know how to live. Uh, we thank you that as we reflect on this, your word, uh, we know that it's come to us so that we'll ha- know how we ought to conduct ourselves in your household, which is your church, a living church, the foundation of the truth. Uh, Father, we pray you'll help us to understand and search this out properly as we seek to honour you as a, a new and young community of believers. Uh, Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If I was to ask you uh, to name your top three Christian truths, I'm not going to do it like the, uh, the kids talk, you don't have to yell them out, but if I asked you to recall them and just put them in your brain, uh, the top three things about Christianity, how would you lock them away? Uh, what, would you, what would you put in there? Top three. I'll give you a second to uh, work this out. They don't need to be in order. I'm not going to ask for a response, so you're safe. All right. This is an exercise for your benefit. Top three. When you come to uh, this first letter of, of Timothy, there are three times when Paul uses a particular phrase. This is a trustworthy saying. It's the way we framed the whole series, trustworthy sayings. That is, um, three times he says, this is of central importance. This is a stellar truth that you, know, you really ought to pay attention to. Neon lights, flashing lights, that sort of picture. Now, two times, it's exactly what I would have expected. Right? Two times. The first one we've already seen in chapter 1, verse 15. Christ Jesus, this is a trustworthy saying, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Yep, forgiveness for sin, really critical. Or if you go over to chapter 4, verse 9, this is a trustworthy saying, we put our hope in the living God who is the saviour of all men. Yep, tick again. I think that was one I'd want to throw in there. But the third is not the one I'd expect. This is a trustworthy saying, chapter 3, verse 1. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. Leadership among God's people. Uh, Paul is saying this is absolutely critically important. This is a top thing of vital and essential to the health of a church. And not only that, it's to be aspired to. Anyone who desires to be an overseer just aspires to a noble task. Now, that doesn't sound very Australian to me. Uh, in Australia, we um, back away from leadership. We like leaders who are self-effacing, who have to be pushed into leading. Uh, that's not the Christian way of thinking about leadership, though. It's not the way the Bible frames it. Leaders are important. And what we've got here in this chapter are instructions or teaching about what to look for when you're looking for Christian leaders. Uh, Certain leaders are identified specifically, uh, but I think these are instructions actually for anyone who serves in any capacity in the church. I'll explain why that's the case. But the first thing I want to do is to um, uh, sort of take a bit of a sidetrack, a detour, and talk about uh, governance or church leadership structures. Uh, It's a bit of a digression, but I think it's helpful because this chapter seems to raise those questions on a regular basis and worthwhile for us as a young church to think about it. Uh, I catch up with a Baptist pastor in Adelaide about twice a year for lunch and often it's just a chance for him to um, 
debrief with someone who's not involved in his system about some of the issues that he's wrestling with. He wrote me an email uh, not that long ago and he talked about some of the tensions he was experiencing in his church and one of the things he said was, I, I, th- I wish we had your system, your Anglican system of governance uh, because what I think I occasionally need is a good bishop. That's what he said to me, a good bishop. And I thought, as he wrote that, be careful what you wish for, actually. That's what was going through my mind. Uh, I spoke to a pastor of a young church. Uh, he church planted in New Zealand about three years ago. And I Skype with him occasionally. We just bounce stuff around. He said that he's having this sort of issue. What sort of is the appropriate governance structure? You know, who should, how things should be worked out and what sort of leadership team you should have. And uh, he was finding that he had quite a bit of uh, discussion emerging around that. So what is the biblical church governance structure? Because we obviously want to adopt that, don't we? Well, here what you've got are names that are given for leaders. You have in verse 1 the overseer, uh, Greek word episkopos, uh, which is the word for bishop, Um, Verse 8, you've got deacons. Here we have the common New Testament word for servant. Now, there is very little here or anywhere else in the whole of the New Testament about their job description or about their powers or responsibilities or authority. It's, It's very thin as you go through the New Testament. There's nothing about what degree they need to hold this position, theological degree, almost nothing at all about their skill sets. And what you see here in these verses is a focus on their character and their life, uh, the way in which they conduct themselves. In the New Testament, there's almost nothing at all about leadership structures or governance structures. Uh, I do sometimes have conversations with people. Uh, They'll... join one of the churches in our network and they'll ask me questions about the leadership structure and often they'll say, do we have elders and deacons? Because they can read those words here in the New Testament. But I know often behind that lies an understanding of what elders and deacons do, what their responsibilities and authorities are. And it really doesn't matter what words you use and you've got to be very careful about filling those words with content that comes from your experience rather than from what the Bible actually does say. But let me say here, when we come to chapter 3, there's a huge amount about what a Christian leader should be like in terms of character, in terms of their attitudes and lifestyle, personally as well as publicly. Well, what is really interesting about these qualities here in chapter 3 is that with the exception of ability to teach, none of the qualities or the attributes or the lifestyle factors that are here in chapter 3 are unique to leaders. That is, I could take you somewhere else in the New Testament and identify a spot where every Christian person is meant to have the qualities that a leader has. The only exception is the requirement to be an apt teacher. That is... This is a chapter about leaders modelling what every follower of the Lord Jesus, every disciple, should be like. Okay, that's the relevance 
of what we're looking at today. So it's good to think about the leaders uh, in our community. You know, we've talked about starting home groups next week or community groups or what are they called, Mike? Community groups, excellent. Uh, we've talked about that. Obviously, we want leaders to aspire to these sort of things, people who look after kids, uh, people who have pastoral responsibility like Mike or trainees like Jack or musicians at the front or whatever it is. These are the sort of things that we're looking at. And what you see uh, when you come to chapter 3 is character is critical. Character is critical. But it isn't what the world generally looks for, is it? Uh, so we all know that Barack Obama is about to step down as President of the United States and there are candidates running uh, for President of the United States. Apparently when he first ran for President, all the experts, all the pundits, were confident he would not be elected. They were certain he wouldn't get up. Now what do you think? Uh, they, they were so confident he wasn't going to be elected. First African-American maybe? Uh, maybe some of his policies and leanings when it comes to policy making. Wasn't any of those things. He, he was the reason. They said they thought he was too skinny. Who, who would have believed that? Okay, so he's, he's 186 centimetres, and at the time when he was elected president, he was only 76 kilos. And all um, the pundits in the States, all the experts were saying there is no way an overweight American nation is going to go for a skinny president, right? There's no way they're going to elect a skinny president. Now, isn't, that, isn't that ridiculous? But isn't that typical? That is, when it comes to leadership in our world, aren't we impressed by image? Uh, isn't that the way often uh, it gets negotiated? So if you're thinking about Christian circles and thinking about image... What are the sort of things that we're likely to be duped by when it comes to leadership? Obviously not skinniness, right? This is not going to be an issue. <laughs> but what sort of things are we likely to go for when it comes to uh, leaders? Maybe we want smart leaders or leaders who have strategic capacity when it comes to you know, direction and future for a church. Or maybe it'd be good to have rich leaders because then they can fund the church. Or maybe charismatic leaders who, by force of personality, drag people with them. Or maybe we appoint people to leadership just because they've been hanging around for a long time. Sometimes it's the gold watch leadership position that we can give to people in churches. Now, some of those things are not necessarily bad. We turn to 1 Timothy 3. And here are some of the things that we observe. I'm just trying to drag some of these qualities together under a few headings so you can see what's going on. Firstly, there's the, the able to teach. Uh, verse 2, the overseer must be able to teach. Not a requirement for a deacon, interestingly enough, but for an overseer. Now, remember the issue in this church here in Ephesus. Uh, back in chapter 1, verse 3, uh, Timothy's commanded by Paul the Apostle, to command certain men not to teach false doctrine. When you get to verse 7 of chapter 1, we're told some will want to be teachers, but they're ignorant. Now, notice what this is and isn't saying. Uh, it's not saying we need brilliant communicators and entertainers. 
Uh, it's not saying we need highly intelligent people who can grab people with concepts and ideas. It's not saying those things. What we need are people who are faithful with the apostolic gospel and especially when they're under pressure. That's what you need in a leader. Someone who when they're under pressure, either from people around them or from, from the way the culture is going or wherever it happens, who will stick with the word of God and not be swayed, will not stretch when it comes to the truth and how to go about it. And the expectation here is that the, the teaching that they hold to will be embedded in their life. It's not just something they say, but something about who they are. Okay. So verse 9, when we move on to deacons in chapter 3, it's expressed really well. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. Conviction about the truth of the gospel, about Jesus, but with integrity that's evidenced in their life. Uh, there's no place for inconsistency of life and teaching. I don't know if you remember a few years ago, the, uh, the Road Accident Commission in Victoria had been running a whole series of um, ads about drink driving and how dangerous it was. They were also the sponsor of one of the AFL clubs in Victoria. Uh, that AFL club had a number of footballers who were arrested for drink driving. And as a result, uh, the Road Accident Commission, they withdrew their sponsorship of that football club. That makes sense, doesn't it? Like you can't have that inconsistency of a message here, the people you promote undermining your message. It's the same when it comes to pastors, teachers, church leaders. Because if the, the person who is the leader among the people of God says one thing, teaches one thing, and does another, then they actually undercut the capacity of the whole of the people of God to be able to do it. Do you know what I mean? They, they undercut the truth in action among the community of God's people. So you want truth and life that go together, living consistently. So what does that leadership integrity uh, integrated into life, what does that look like? What we have here is not a, a, a complete list, but it gives you sort of um, uh, pictures, cameos of what it's meant to be like and how you're meant to work it out. So, for example, the leaders are meant to have a deep care for other people. Uh, verse 2 talks about the overseer being hospitable, right? Now, th this doesn't mean they have to be master chef. Uh, you know, they don't have to have that sort of capacity to cook gourmet meals. Uh, what it's talking about is a generosity of sharing of life with outsiders. Notice, though, that it, it's not saying that church leaders must have hospitable spouses who are great at looking after crowds. It's not saying that. So uh, Mike, for example, Jen, is wonderfully hospitable in the home, uh, but Mike is the overseer. The overseer is meant to be hospitable. Uh, that is, Mike has got to be the one who is 
generous towards outsiders and strangers. It's a requirement he's meant to have. Now, as a household, I'll have it, but it's a requirement for him. That's what's being said here. Verse 3. Not violent, but gentle. Not quarrelsome. Uh, that is, we can't have someone who's um, physically or emotionally abusive. Uh, they've got to be kind towards people. We don't want someone who is quarrelsome, you know, always arguing the point with people, loves to get into fights. That's not what we're looking for. So who, who do we look for uh, to serve coffee before and after church, right? Do we look for the person who has great barista skills and makes those really nice patterns in the milk on top, you know? Uh, well, not a bad thing. It's always nice to have nice coffee, you know, and pretty coffee until you suck it off the top, you know. I mean, that's, a, that's not a bad thing in some ways. But that's not what we're looking for. We're looking for people who care for others, and especially for newcomers. That's what you want in people with that sort of role, if they can make coffee good, you know, but it's not the critical thing. They need, need to be self-controlled, temperate, uh, or verse 3, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle. We don't want leaders who spit the dummy and lose their temper with people. We can't have leaders who are out of control because they have some issue with alcohol that takes over their life. That's, that's really important, I think, in our culture because alcohol is such a big issue. It's such a... Um, a powerful force that causes people to get out of control. Uh, you know, we constantly hear in the paper these days about people being king hip. Uh, and it's generally by people who are drunk and out of control. You know, we don't want that or even a watered-down version of that as an example among the people of God. We want people who have self-control when it comes to tongues um, you can't have people leading the people of God who are gossips or who lie or who cut down people with their tongue. That's just inappropriate. I was talking to uh, a married woman the other day, somewhere else in the network, and uh, she said to me that she was having a discussion with her husband about someone else from church. And she said she wasn't speaking in a positive way about that person. And her husband said, I don't think it's appropriate for, appropriate for us to talk about a Christian brother that way. See, what a good husband, eh? Like gently, um, but just saying, no, that's, that's not the way we talk about our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's a great quality, isn't it? That's the sort of person you want leading among the people of God who has that sort of concern. You want leaders who have healthy patterns of relationships. Interesting, isn't it? It talks about being only the husband of but one wife. Now, this is not saying uh, leaders have to be married. It doesn't rule out singles. It's not, not saying either that they are only allowed to be married once. That's what it's saying. Otherwise, widows and widowers could never qualify either, could they, if they got remarried. So it's obviously not talking about that sort of situation. It's, it's obviously a reference to polygamy 
or divorced relationships. Now, one of the two, and most likely I think it's broken relationships rather than polygamy. Now, the issue here, remember what we're thinking about is um, stability and faithfulness and consistency of life. So it's, it's a question about faithfulness in marriage that's on view. And I think that if we see someone who um, has had a broken marriage relationship, then the question is, have they contributed to that broken relationship in some way that is an indicator of their inability to be a stable, faithful leader in the family of God? That's the sort of issue being raised. Now, I don't think this is a, uh, a legalistic rule in any way. I don't think it's saying, if there's divorce, no way. I actually don't think that's the way in which 1 Timothy 3 is framed. I think rather it's saying, here are a series of indicators to measure faithfulness towards God and stability of life and maturity when it comes to leading among the people of God. You may have someone, for example, who is largely a victim of a broken relationship or divorce, or maybe someone who is a recent, not a recent, but a late convert to Christianity. So someone who um, gets married at 21, uh, divorced at 25, converted at 45, and you're talking about leadership at 60. I think it's a very different issue at that point. I don't think it's a disqualifier. I think it's a factor that you take into account and think through among the people of God. Verse 4, they must manage their own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. Now, this is not saying we need to um, uh, sit outside the Sam's household during term time and from 8.15 and see if they get their kids to school on time, you know, manage their own household well. That's not what's going on here. It's talking about leaders who are godly with their family. That is, husbands who love their wives and care for them, or are they people who treat their wives like slaves and put them down, or in the home uh, where they're, they're selfish and self-centred and demanding? It's that sort of quality. Uh, in the household of someone who aspires to be a leader, is their spouse someone who respects uh, their, their partner in the gospel? Or does a spouse put their husband or wife down and ridicule him either to his face or even behind his back? That's the sort of thing that's going on here. Do the, the kids run riot and lack discipline? That is, is the husband or wife someone who so doesn't care for their kids but they don't discipline them because they don't love them? If they don't love their kids... They won't love the people of God. To see how the, the whole thing sort of works itself out. And this is, again, not saying you have to be married and we have to see what you do with kids before you can be in leadership. Uh, someone who is single, what I'd do is I want to know how, if they're living with other singles in their household, how do they treat the other singles in their household? You know, are they someone who pulls their weight in their household and cares for the other people they live with? Or if they're living at home with their parents, do they love and respect their parents that they live with? I'd be looking for those sort of qualities, to see godliness worked out before thinking about the nature of leadership 
among God's people. And the principle is clear, isn't it? If you can't get it right in your own household, what hope have you got of leading a church? Your household is important. The church is much more important. You see, much more important. Because this is the eternal family that you belong to. And therefore, this is the household, personal household, as a stepping stone in that direction. Now, a couple of thoughts. One is, you understand that with Christian leadership, you cannot have any separation of public and private. No one can be a leader who says, um, I have the skill set to do this job, but I guard my privacy and you cannot come in. There's no capacity in Christian leadership to put up that sort of wall and to have that sort of separation or to think you can be one way at church or one way in your private life. There's no scope for that sort of thing. That's the first thing. Second thing is, there's no... um, This is not a call to perfection. This is not saying Christian leaders have to be perfect Uh, because we all know that when you look at the scriptures that every believer... Uh, is sinful in one way or the other and we all are wrestling with that that is we we keep growing in holiness and faithfulness but we will not be there until we get to heaven now the classic example is here in um, 1 Timothy back in chapter 1 Paul talks about himself as the greatest of sinners and it's not actually past tense interestingly enough although he's clearly referring to his past but he has an understanding of who he is in Christ. Um, or when you come to the question of, you know, mustn't be violent. Paul was violent. He killed people, you know. <laughs> so there's this scope for growth. There's also uh, an understanding that perfection is not what's being required. Just one other quality I want to draw attention to. It's the issue of um, idolatry. Notice in verse 3, it talks about those who aspire to be overseers not being lovers of money. Now, that's an issue that you could read up more on if you go to chapter 6. But how do you measure that? How do you measure if someone is a lover of money? What, what does that look like? If someone's drunk, I think I can work it out pretty easily. Lover of money I think it's where money is too important Uh, it could be where there's a meanness with others rather than a generosity possibly it's a preoccupation with expensive toys or a constant planning about the next overseas trip or there could be lots of indicators Let me tell you positively what the test of it is. If the gospel has captured somebody's heart, then the gospel will master their money and they will think constantly about how their money is used for the furtherance of the gospel. That's actually the way Paul thinks in chapter 6. Now, what's interesting in Christian circles, the area of money is very interesting actually because uh, in our society most think most people think this is a totally private issue. You're not allowed to talk to people about money. There's a few things you can't talk to people about. Money is one of them, okay? Christians have actually, over the years, adopted the same sort of approach. 
Uh, they go to a place like the Sermon on the Mount, I think in chapter 6 of Matthew's Gospel, uh, where uh, in the context of talking about money, it says you mustn't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So it's an issue for privacy. We don't talk about that sort of thing. If you look at that particular section, it also talks about praying in private. That is, uh, don't pray in public, it says, go privately into your own room and pray. Now, Christians generally don't say, okay, we've banned public prayer. Right? That is, probably, is there prayer later on in the service, Jack? Yeah. Who's leading the prayers? Jean. Jean. Mustn't pray in public, Jean, right? because Matthew chapter 6 says you mustn't do it. We don't think that way, do we? Now, why is that? It's because in Matthew chapter 6, it's talking about hypocrisy. It's talking about sort of presenting yourself before others uh, in that sort of way. So it's saying, when it comes to prayer, don't do it to impress others. When it comes to money, don't do it to impress others. Okay? It's not arguing for privacy. I actually think this is one area where believers need to be really accountable, like we are in other areas of our Christian life, and open to being able to talk about this. So we're not actually guilty of that sort of hypocrisy or secrecy, uh, which this chapter is totally against. Notice the other thing is, I'm just, just trying to give you this sort of sweep of the feel of this chapter. It talks about also the leaders having a good reputation. Uh, verse 6, uh, it says, don't appoint someone to the position of overseer who's a recent convert. Uh, and I take it the reason is so they don't get a big head. Uh, we're looking for people who lead because they, they love Jesus, they want to serve, not because they need to for their own sake. That's the test of, of maturity. Well, verse 7, they need to have a good reputation with outsiders. I don't know if we do this enough in the church, but when we're thinking about, say, appointing people to a Bible study group, we ought to go and chat to 10 of their non-Christian friends in the work situation, the sporting club, and other situations where they're... And ask if they have a good reputation in that context. That's a good test, I reckon. Now... It may be you go into one of those situations where you as a follower of Jesus are known as the crazy religious person. Okay? You might think, well, maybe that disqualifies you. Because it doesn't. Because you have convictions about following Christ. I think it's more talking about how you care for and love people in each of those contexts. And whether people regard you highly because of the way in which you conduct yourselves in those situations. Uh, character, integrity, love. What we're talking about in this chapter are leaders who lead by example. They hold on to the truth and they work out the truth of the gospel in their lives. As I say, I don't think this is a mechanical list, a uh, you know, box-ticking list, nor do I think it covers every possible issue of godliness and faithfulness that we could look at. Uh, it's not designed to do that, that either. It's more a checklist of the idea of what we're looking for. What do you want uh, as you look for leaders here at Trinity Grove? Who do you put into those sort of permission uh, positions? Um, if we promote talented and gifted people, then the church will aspire to be talented and gifted. That's the reality. Now, if they're not godly 
and talented and gifted, then what you'll do is you'll promote gifted ungodliness, which is a terrible accommodation, you see. Talent is not a problem, but it's governed by godliness. That's always the case among the people of God. So what do we look for when it comes to, say, a a youth leader? Uh, Do we need a youth youth leader who's a kid magnet, who has a hot car, cool clothes, a bit of a rebel, you know, like Jack Page, uh, you know? No, no, we, we want someone who's actually loves the Lord Jesus. Their life reflects that. The one who serves kids. One who models how to love parents so that the kids will grow up with that sort of understanding. What about music ministry? I was talking about the Skype call I had with a guy in New Zealand the other day, just this week actually, and he was saying he had an issue with one of his, again, a young church like this one. So when it comes to the musicians who are up the front, uh, he has someone who's responsible for that musical area, and he said to that person, what I'm really looking for is to make sure that the people who are up the front are people who you know, have their Christian life in line, not just people who can play music and do that really well. But yeah, where we know, you know their lives are basically in line with the gospel. And the person leading the music area said, no, no, I think that's just between God and them. You know, It's not just between God and them. Because these people are, at least to some degree, put up front in terms of their modelling of the Christian life. So we want them to be people who love the Lord Jesus and are working that out. When it comes to a treasurer, someone who's going to manage the finances for our church, do we find someone who is a merchant banker and obviously very clever with money? It may be useful. But you know the first thing we're looking for with the treasurer of this church? Someone who loves his wife and kids or husband and kids who is desperate for the gospel to advance, who is extremely generous in terms of their thinking, who doesn't control the purse strings of the church as a matter of power, but wants to enable resources to be used for the furtherance of the kingdom. A mature, godly person. That's what we'll, If they, they can count, that's really handy. Uh, do you know what I mean? But, but you actually, if you don't have integrity and someone can count, you might be in big trouble. See? Uh, sure, count's good, but integrity is absolutely critical. When it comes to staff that we have as a church, uh, this, this overseer list is really helpful. Uh, you want someone who is servant-hearted, as a household that loves Jesus, is temperate, is patient, kind towards outsiders and generous. You know, and my observation over the years I've known the Sams is they're a couple just like that. And you're extremely blessed to have uh, leaders who have that sort of heart. This is a trustworthy saying. Uh, Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Yeah, it wouldn't have been one of my top three Christian truths, I don't think. And yet, here it is, is vitally important. But then as you go through this chapter, it makes sense, doesn't it? Because when the, uh, the gospel has been contended for, the truth of the gospel, 
What you want are people who not only have convictions about the truth of the gospel, but convictions that show itself in their lives because they're modelling by both their teaching and their life what it means to be a Christian person. And you do hear the gospel and you learn it, but you also catch it by observing others. When um, I became a Christian, one of the first men that I met who took me under his wings was a guy called Reg Piper. Uh, Reg was the senior minister of the church at Holy Trinity in town. Uh, he was there from 1980. And I started working as a, a young uh, graduate in town and Reg would come and visit with me every week and read the Bible and we would talk about the Christian life together. That's what we would do. Uh, he encouraged Sue and I to head off to Bible college and then when we came into Bible college, he employed me back onto the staff team. And we, we shared a back fence with the Pipers for about six or seven years, maybe six years I think it was. We got to look over the back fence and see what they were doing, how they were living. We saw how they treated their kids. I used to walk in, it was about a four kilometre trip into town. I'd walk into town with Reg, we'd talk. Uh, he shared enormous, he at points gently rebuked me about things that I need to. I remember one time he said to me, Paul, it would be really good if just occasionally you could let someone tell you something without them thinking you already knew it. Yeah? Isn't that a kind word from a pastor? <laughs> <laughs> he said it, and he said it quite that way, just gently, kindly. And it took me about three minutes to work out what he just said to me, you know? <laughs> but he was a man like that. I saw him when he was under the pump. Uh, and being inappropriately criticised and hammered by people, and the way in which he just radiated grace and kindness. I, tell you, I learned enormous <laughs> amounts from him in terms of the way he modelled the Christian life. Friends, it's a good thing to set your heart on being uh, an overseer, a leader among the people of God. It's a good thing to support those who have overseer responsibility among you in the way in which they lead and help to serve you because as they go so goes the community of God's people and you know that in Christian ministry uh, wherever Christian leaders in whatever sphere they're serving in whenever they hold to the deep truths of the faith and you see it reflected in the way in which they operate in terms of their Christian lives they, they set sort of the benchmark or the bar for everyone else in a really healthy way. And people then aspire to knowing and leading Christian lives that reflect what they're doing. Here's a trustworthy saying, brothers and sisters in Christ. Here it is, a trustworthy saying. If anyone sets his heart or her heart on being an overseer, a leader among the people of God, uh, he or she, they desire a noble task. It's a noble task. Yeah, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that um, for these sort of chapters in your word, we know they're, they're really just sort of kitchen sink chapters, uh, just practical, basic, um, straightforward. And yet we know, Father, to read them requires a level of um, understanding and insight. To put them into practice is actually quite challenging because we know we're flawed people. Uh, we know we live by your grace. Uh, 
But Father, we pray that we will aspire to live this sort of life, to be these sort of people. And therefore, Father, we pray uh, that you will uh, provide this church with godly and faithful men and women who will lead according to your word and with a deep desire to model this sort of life among us. Uh, Father, we particularly commend to you uh, Mike and Jen. Uh, we thank you for the way in which they've uh, led us into this new planting situation. Uh, Father, we pray that these qualities will be their qualities as a godly uh, Christian couple, uh, that they'll be faithful to one another, that you'll give them uh, self-control, even tempers, uh, hospitality, even in their weariness, that you'll keep strengthening Mike for faithfully teaching your word, that they'll be self-disciplined, that they'll love their kids and raise them in the love of the Lord, that they'll conduct themselves in a manner that is worthy of full respect. And Father, we thank you for them, but we thank you for this church and the people you've provided here to serve. We pray we'll all aspire to these qualities and live faithfully for you and commend your gospel to outsiders. Uh, Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.